Lord, we do thank you uh, for all that we have. It's always uh, good to take a trip to another country, a third world country, because it is a glaring reminder of your astonishing blessing in our lives. We, uh, we are thankful that you have worked in our hearts so that we can be thankful. And a lot of folks are going to blow through these holidays and they're just thinking of time off and they're thinking of parties and friends and football and the stuff that goes with American holidays. But we are so grateful that you have worked in our lives that you have opened our blind eyes, that we might see the truth of the gospel. Uh, Because you've done that, we know that every good and perfect gift comes from down from you. And that includes the hot water and the tap and the electricity uh, that's flowing through the house that we can harness and have lights and heat and all that other stuff. We, We really do live easy lives compared with the people who have walked the earth before us. We have so many conveniences. We have so many comforts. We simply say thank you, as the pilgrim said thank you. We thank you for your provision and for your care. And then, Lord, we roll from Thanksgiving right on into Christmas. And in the middle of uh, the activities that uh, are, uh, are many and almost never-ending, We thank you that we know what the real issue of Christmas is all about. It's your son and the fact that he would humble himself and become the God-man, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would live a sinless life, that he would suffer and die on our behalf so that we might be set free from sin. Uh, He rose from the dead so that we might be able to be made alive and live forever with you. So, Lord, these are significant days coming up. We want to take a minute tonight to ponder these things before life really ramps up over the next five, six, seven weeks. We say thank you from our hearts. We ask you to... um, We ask you to surprise us tonight by giving us what we need. And some of us, Lord, are not even sure what we need. But give us something, Lord, that will uh, sustain us. Give us a piece of truth that we can live off of. If it's encouragement, give us encouragement. If it's a rebuke, give us a rebuke. You're the good father. You know exactly what we need. You've never let us down. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you guys remember when one of the great mistakes of history was committed by the Coca-Cola company. (laughs) New Coke. They they had a winner. They, They had the best drink in the world. And somebody got the brilliant idea that they ought to change it. So you remember when they went from Coke uh, to New Coke. And the response was so negative and so loud that they had to backtrack uh, in a hurry. And that's where we found the term uh, that we hadn't known before, but uh, it was classic Coke. Uh, now there's Diet Coke and there's uh, Vanilla Coke. And that, that sort of started uh, uh, a whole lot of changes. But um, when they changed Coke, it was a big mistake. I found something this week that you might find of interest, you, uh, you Coke drinkers. Uh, a few years ago, Coca-Cola tried to change its recipe, but consumers rose up against the new Coke until Coke Classic was brought back. But Coke Classic itself had a different recipe than what most baby boomers used to drink at the old malt shops. In the 1980s, 
to no fanfare, the company switched from using cane sugar to corn syrup. Most people knew nothing about the change. This change, however, did not take place in Mexico, where the bottlers stuck to the old formula. Now, Mexican Coke has become a prime commodity for soft drink purists. Available in border stores and in some Mexican restaurants as far north as Chicago, and distinguishable by its green bottles, Mexican Coke made with sugar is said to have a crisper taste. It presumably has more of the prized Coke burn and is, well, of course, less syrupy. Um, I found this on the World Magazine uh, blog site, and they had a little blurb on this, and I clicked on it to read the rest of the article, and then they had a place where people could comment on this, and they had, uh, they had eight pages of comments on this. The war in Iraq had a page and a half. I mean, this really turned people's cranks, and I found some fascinating things. Did you know that RC Cola has a select cola that's out now that's made with cane sugar and pure spring water? It's, RC, it's Royal Clown Cola Select. Select. And there are people in this world that are committed to that. Did you know that the original Dr. Pepper recipe is still bottled by one bottler in some little town? Where is it? See, so you guys know. It's at Whole Foods. See, I, I had no idea you guys, you guys were part of this cult, and you're in this study. No, don't start. I, I, I know you got a lot to say. you got eight pages worth of comments on this stuff. In fact, you're probably in here, aren't you, David? Isn't that wild? So it is at, uh, it is at Whole Foods. Really? But the end result is that Coca-Cola increased their total global market share by 16% because rechanging the formula back, they gained customers from their mistakes. Yeah. They actually made money. You know, that's the first time you ever opened your mouth in this Bible study. <laughs> hey, man, you're, just, you're one of these people. I'm a shareholder, what can I say? You're a shareholder. Your hands are shaking, too. You need a Dr. Pepper, man. Yeah. See, this is what I'm talking about. Now, isn't that interesting? I mean, it is kind of fascinating. But you see, the big deal, classic Coke, you know, new Coke, all right, we've changed back. See, they really didn't change back. They made a change that nobody knew about. You see, the fact of the matter and the heart of the matter is, is that Coca-Cola has changed. Uh, you know, the, the Scripture talks a lot about truth. And the scripture from time to time in the Psalms will talk about truth in the innermost being, uh, truth in the heart. Um, when we talk about the heart, we're talking about the core. We're, sometimes the phrase, have you ever used the phrase uh, or heard the phrase, in your, in your heart of hearts? See, that captures it. Down deep in your heart of hearts, what does that mean? In your core. What's really there? What do you really believe? What are you all about in, in, your, in your heart of hearts? Proverbs has a lot to say about the heart. Uh, we're going to finish chapter 4 tonight. And you guys have been with us, and you know that Proverbs is a father uh, writing to his son. Uh, he is instructing his son about life. He's instructing his son about wisdom. Now, obviously, this applies to daughters as well. But in, in the scriptures and in the Old Testament culture, there was a concept called primogenitor uh, that's been around for a long time. It used to be that when a father died, his inheritance, the entire inheritance, Ron Blue, some of you guys know Ron Blue. Uh, he's done some good stuff on money management and financial affairs. Ron Blue has just written a book called Splitting Heirs, H-E-I-R-S. 
It's a very interesting book about leaving money to your children. And uh, it's a somewhat of a controversial book because uh, if you have, according to Ron, he has a theory. And I haven't read the book yet. I just found it this week. But if you have uh, grown children that are believers and committed to Christ and you have those who are away from the Lord, uh, it's, uh, as I understand it, it's Ron's feeling that you should not leave money that is going to be spent irresponsibly and not for kingdom business. And so it's sparking a lot of controversy. Now, he's writing this book in a world that doesn't have primogeniture. Because if you had primogeniture, that would be a moot point. It used to be that when a father died, everything was left to the oldest son. The eldest son. Ah, You can go visit... In England, Winston Churchill's uh, uh, home and estate called Chartwell uh, that he purchased when, uh, when he was in his 30s. Uh, but he was born at the family uh, castle, uh, which is really the most uh, extravagant and uh, glorious castle in all of England. Uh, it was given to his great, 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 grandfather, the Duke of Marlborough. Um, Churchill was born there at Marlborough Castle, uh, but uh, he didn't live there because, you see, his father, his father did not inherit uh, the castle because his father was the youngest son in the family. Uh, even in Churchill's family, a lot of people thought Churchill was, was wealthy because of his family situation and, and the bloodline, but he wasn't wealthy. He basically lived from hand to mouth all of his life because he was left with nothing. Everything went to the oldest son, and his father was the youngest of the brothers. Uh, that's why in Proverbs you have the emphasis on fathers teaching sons because sons were to assume the family leadership when the father died. Now, here's a king, Solomon, talking to his uh, sons. He had more than one son, but it was his son Rehoboam that finally, when Solomon died, replaced him. And as we've talked about, uh, everything that Solomon and David had taken 80 years to build, Rehoboam destroyed in 72 hours. It's a tragic story. In Proverbs chapter 4, there is a breakdown in this passage, and we're beginning with verse uh, 20. I want to go ahead and give you the breakdown of verses 20 to 27. Some of you guys are taking notes. You'll notice in verses 20 to 22, the subject is fathers and health. Health. Uh, namely, the health of the son. We'll come back and uh, amplify on that. And, and of course, it's just not sons. It's the health of everyone in the family. As the father goes, so goes the family. Then in verses 23... It switches from uh, fathers and health to sons and hearts. Sons and hearts. Then in 24, it goes to sons and mouths, M-O-U-T-H-S, the mouth and speech of a son. Then in verse 25, you've got sons and eyes, E-Y-E-S. Then in verses 26 through 27, you've got wisdom that is being shared in regard to sons and feet. Feet. That's how it breaks down. Last week, I opened with uh, uh, a, a section that uh, Max Lucado had written upon uh, the first Father's Day that he experienced after his dad died. And it was quite a tribute that Max wrote to, uh, to his dad. It was pretty moving. Dad wasn't well-known. Dad wasn't famous. His dad was just the guy that followed the Lord and, and lived his life, and he lived life well, and Max has been the beneficiary of that. Uh, I came across a great theological work this week, the biography of Jimmy Dean. <laughs> it's called 30 Years of Sausage, 50 Years of Ham. 
Um, there's not a lot in here worth reading. <laughs> I found it on sale at Tom Thumb when I was waiting in line this week. But I bought it. And here's why I bought it. Jimmy Dean's telling his life story. Chapter 1, page 4. I don't remember much about my father, but I do recall that he was gone a lot and that I didn't like the way he treated my mom. Dad liked the ladies, I'm told. He was quite a rounder and apparently a rather horny old boy and not much of a husband to my mother. He wasn't much of a provider either. I remember that once my mother let my brother and I went to save enough money from working after school so we could buy some boxing gloves for Christmas. And when we left the money lying on the piano, my dad put it in his pocket and we never saw it again. And then there was the time we were over at old man Holcomb's place. I guess I was about five or six years old at the time. He said he'd sell us one of his baby goats for a dollar. And I remember begging and pleading with my dad. I thought they were the cutest things I'd ever seen and I really wanted one. But dad said no. Even when we were offered one for 50 cents, my dad still wouldn't budge. Finally, Mr. Holcomb could see how much I wanted this cute little black and white one, and he gave it to me. I loved that little goat. He was my pal and my buddy, and he followed me everywhere. He'd even let me lay my head on his belly and go to sleep, and we'd lay down on the porch for a nap, and he wouldn't move until I got up. I had my goat for a couple of years when the unthinkable happened. We hadn't had any meat for a long time because we were, we were pretty poor. And my dad decided he was going to kill my goat for food. I remember watching my dad chase him as I stood there in tears. It made me sick to my stomach to think that he would do such a thing, and naturally I couldn't eat a bite. It, it, it broke my heart. Dad had his good points, I guess. It was said that he was a man of many talents, and it was true. My father tried his hand at being a songwriter, inventor, singer, preacher, and author. Anything to get him out of doing an honest day's work. For a while, he traveled and performed with Harley Sadler's Tent Show. And he did, in fact, write a book called The Only Sure Steps to Success and Happiness. In it, he quoted a lot of Bible verses and proclaimed that success and happiness can only be attained by a closer walk with God and a high plane of Christian living. I guess he talked the talk all right, but he sure didn't walk the walk. The only thing I can remember about my father is that he beat the hell out of me quite often. And as Forrest Gump would say, that's all I have to say about that. Pretty sad. Everybody in here has a story about a father. And we talked about this, guys, this fall. For some of us, it's a good story, like Max's dad with some good memories, and we're grateful for what our fathers uh, have done for us. Uh, others of us, it's, it's not a pretty picture. Um, there was a commercial on Fox News last night, so I was fishing around, and I went to A&E Biography, and it, they were just beginning a program on uh, Hitler and Joseph Stalin. It was very interesting. I never did make it back to Fox News. Um, as you know, Hitler killed over six million Jews. But uh, Joseph Stalin, who was his contemporary and his uh, enemy in World War II, Joseph Stalin ran Russia. Uh, Joseph Stalin killed people by the tens of millions. They still don't know how many people how many peasants, how many farmers were killed by Stalin? These two men uh, who lived parallel lives uh, and went to war with one another were, uh, were two of the greatest mass murderers in all of history. They would show a section, uh, a, a section from Hitler's life, and then they would go over to Stalin and show his life. Uh, Stalin, uh, Joseph Stalin went to seminary for five years to go into the ministry. Um, then they'd switch over to Hitler. Uh, Hitler was very, very involved in the church. Uh, 
had great artistic gifts and uh, loved music and sang in the church choir and was, was at church quite a bit as a young man. Uh, they both had church backgrounds. They were both steeped in Christianity. Two of the greatest mass murderers in history. Uh, then they started talking about Stalin's father. Uh, his father was a controlling, authoritarian man who beat him and his mother on a regular basis. It was common for Joseph Stalin as a young man. And by the way, Stalin wasn't his real name. Uh, he changed it when he got older because Stalin, he hated his father and hated his name. And so he changed his name to Stalin, which in Russian means man of steel, which he wasn't. Uh, but he changed his name because he didn't want his father's name. His father would beat him and his mother on a regular basis. And pretty much throughout his life, uh, he had blood in his urine from the internal bleeding that his father caused in his life. Then they switched to Hitler and Hitler's relationship with his dad. Uh, Hitler's father was a controlling authoritarian man who beat him and his mother. At one point, he beat Hitler so severely that he was in a coma for days, and they, and they didn't think he'd ever come out of it. They thought he'd die. Um, see, that explains those guys. That explains the hate. That explains the rage. That explains the violence. That uh, explains the cold-bloodedness in their hearts. It all goes back to their relationship with their father. That's why the scriptures has so much to say about fathers. Fathers play a critical role. Uh, fathers, uh, fathers set the atmosphere of a home. Uh, we said early on about maybe the first or second week when we got in the Proverbs that fathers, um, fathers do, do one of two things. Fathers either construct or they destruct their families. If you were raised in a home where your father uh, was a positive man, like Max Lucado's dad, then you experience construction. Because, see, when a father constructs, he builds people up. But some fathers don't build people up, they tear them down. So fathers, and now we're the fathers, so we can go one of two ways. We, we can construct or we can destruct. And it all has to do with us. It all has to do with our Maybe you were raised in a hellacious environment and your dad literally beat you and beat your mother. Well, the question is, what kind of father are you going to be? We are not doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past because of the power of Christ. And I would imagine if they studied Stalin's family and Hitler's family, that kind of behavior had been in their families for generations because men who are abusive to wives and children tend, in fact, I've never seen an exception to it. They come from homes where that happened to them. And so that goes on from generation to generation, and it's passed down. But when Christ comes into our lives, you see there can be a change of heart. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And then we have an opportunity because of what Christ has done, that he's changes. We can put a new link in the family chain and as a result of what Christ has done in my life, you might come from 10 generations of that. Because of the redeeming work of Christ, your kids should never have to deal with what you dealt with because of Christ and because of his sacrifice and because of the fact that you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. See, the fact of the matter is, is that fathers have a lot to do with the health, emotionally, physically, spiritually, of their children. So let's look at verse 20 of Proverbs 4. <clears throat> my son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do you think uh, Stalin did that with his dad? I'll guarantee you he did. And why didn't he do it? Because that was the last man on the face of the earth that he wanted to listen to. Because of the way that the man behaved, the way he was treated. You think when uh, Jimmy Dean's dad spoke that Jimmy Dean, his dad wrote a book. His dad wrote a book on how to live a successful life, full of Bible verses. You think when his dad spoke, 
after killing that little pet goat, did he incline his ear to his father? No. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them. Catch this. And life to all their body. Uh, And again, some of us have experienced that. We've had fathers that have led us uh, by their words and by their lives in the truth of Jesus Christ. Uh, There has been integrity. There has been congruency. Their walk has matched up to their talk. There's nothing more powerful. And if you have, if, if you grew up in a home like that, you know what? Uh, there is health in your life. There's great. Some of you guys married women from homes, and your wife had a great relationship with her dad growing up. Do you know what that's brought into your life? Because of her relationship with her dad that was so healthy, you know what that's brought into your life? It's brought health into your life. But some of you married gals who were wounded deeply by their fathers. Uh, and what you have had to deal with in your marriage as a result has not been health. Uh, you've had to deal with wounds and pain and uh, anger and disappointment and at times a lack of trust with you, and it all goes back to her relationship with her father. Is it not amazing how central fathers are in the lives of their children? It is, and see, guys, for this reason, it is the most important work that we do, this work of being fathers and this work of being grandfathers. Um, There's nothing more essential. It's something you can't can't outsource. It's something that you can't have someone on your staff take care of. It's, It's something that God has given us as men to do, and it is... Far and away, the most important work we'll ever do on earth is how we handle our children. And uh, uh, when I was out at my son's uh, school, Biola University, several weeks ago, Biola is very strong in missions. And I talked with uh, some students there whose parents had been on the mission field. And... Uh, you got to hand it to their folks. They, yeah, I remember talking to a couple of these kids, and their, their folks were Bible translators, and they went in and lived in the jungles in the remotest conditions imaginable uh, with tribes that had no written language. So they had to come up with an alphabet, and they had to come up with a language before they can e- even begin to translate the Bible into their language. And you're talking work that takes 20 and 25 years in very remote uh, uh, severe conditions. And so oftentimes missionaries in those situations will send their children off to boarding school. Uh, I will tell you this. The children that are sent off to boarding school have huge issues with God. Huge. Huge. And, and, and you can understand why. And, and the greatest of motivations would be in their parents' hearts. Um, And before the Lord, those parents have had to decide what they would do with their children before the Lord. Uh, Personally, I would never send my kids off to a boarding school. Now, I'm not saying that someone who has done, they've got to stand before the Lord. But discipleship begins in the home. Uh, Christianity begins in the home, in, in my estimation. Do you remember I told you weeks ago about uh, Jim Dobson's dad. And when Jim Dobson hit 16, just a typical adolescent, and this kid grew up like a weed, and you know his dad was a, an evangelist and had been the most successful and sought-after evangelist in their denomination. His dad was booked four years out, and his dad would be gone for two weeks and home for two weeks, and that worked well for years in their family. But when Jim Dobson hit 16, and he's becoming a man, and his mom started telling him what to do, he... he Suddenly, you had some conflict, and it was getting real serious. So one night, he had a blow-up with his mom. She sent him to his room. His mom made the call. 
His dad was out speaking at meetings, doing a revival. And as Jim Dobson said, I was in the other room listening because I wanted to know what my dad was going to do. And it was a very short conversation. But I remember my mom saying to my dad, I need you. And what his father did was his father uh, canceled the remaining days of the meeting, got in the car, drove home. Two days later, put up a for sale sign. And they moved. And his father, who was a gifted evangelist, took a real small church in South Texas. His father um, um, was not, quote, unquote, a pastor. Uh, probably didn't have the people skills for that. But he did that. In other words, he stepped away what was, from what was best for him in order to go home and mentor his young son for the next two years before that boy took off for college. Not many men would have the guts to walk especially when you're at the top of your game. Churches four years out wanted this man, and he's seen hundreds and hundreds of people come to Christ. But he knew that his first responsibility before God was not all those other people. It was that boy at home. So he did what few men would do. He walked away from that which brought him much joy, uh, much satisfaction, he was in the zone in that ministry because it was what he was called to. He walked away from it, and he went home for the next two years. Proverbs says, discipline your son while there is hope. He walked away from all that to go home to focus on his family. And aren't you glad that he did? Yeah. Now, he had no idea of what God would do out of that. Uh, but... Uh, as a result, where there was a lack of health, uh, health set back in because of the actions of a father. And as a result of that, countless millions of people have been helped through the ministry of James Dobson. And when you, when you talk to Jim Dobson, he'll tell you it has everything to do with his father and his father's influence in his life. So what is a father supposed to do? Father's supposed to coach. Father's supposed to teach. And as we pointed out last week, and see, I appreciate you old guys coming to this. You guys, if you're old, you know who you are. <laughs> You've got a membership card. And uh, tonight, Roger, back there, officially let me know that I was old because he's an ophthalmologist, and I was asking about that LASIK surgery thing, you know. And he said, well, that's, Steve, that's usually for people in their 20s and 30s. I said, what you're telling me is that I'm too old for that. And uh, he, he tried to say it nicely, but he, yes, he was letting me know I am beyond hope. <laughs> and I appreciated his encouragement. He let me down easy. Uh, if you're an old guy, you, hey, here's how, for our purposes tonight, your kids are up and gone. They're not under your roof. That's how we're defining old tonight. And I thank you guys for that you keep coming to this. Uh, but see, you're, you're smart enough to know that this applies to being a grandfather as well. You never stop being a leader in your family. You know, you just encounter new challenges and the chapters of life change. But uh, you know that your influence is still critical. It's extremely critical. He goes from fathers and health to sons and their hearts. Now, I think that's really interesting. Every once in a while, you know, you'll go down and I'll go down and they'll put us on the treadmill and they'll hook us up and, you know, they'll run us through all this stuff and they're checking your heart. Well, not only is the condition of your heart critical, but in a sense, what's even more critical is the condition of your son's heart, according to Proverbs. Uh, verse 23, now he's instructing his son about his son's heart heart. Watch over your heart, son, we could say, with all diligence. What's that term? Due diligence. You hear about this in mergers or in deals, you know, they're not quite ready to close because we've got to do our, our what? Due diligence. What does that mean? Research. It means you, 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 Dot the I's and you cross the T's. I finished my book on mentoring sons about a month ago. 
But, but there, is, there is one phase that I'm always in denial over uh, because it requires the due diligence. It's when, just before it goes into the uh, proofs, uh, they typeset it, and then they send it back. To, the book's done. But then these copy editor guys, the, these guys that sit in rooms with no oxygen and no windows, and uh, they never leave those rooms. But these guys have these glasses, and all they do is go, they go over every line, and they find, uh, they find little errors, little nitpicking errors. And they want to know uh, on your footnotes. They want to know the precise date of publication. And is that publishing house in Chicago or New York? I always put it in New York because every publishing house in the world is in New York. I shouldn't have said that, but <laughs> sometimes when I'm not sure, I just stick in New York, and 99% of the time you're right. But those guys, and see, this week they sent me the proofs, and, and they got all these little nitpicking, because that book's got to be right, and I understand that. But that stuff drives me nuts. That's due diligence. You're crossing your T's, you're dotting your I's. And you're getting an excedrin headache in the middle of it. You see? That's due diligence. Sometimes you got to get the details right. They're important. What does he say to his boy? Watch over your heart with all due diligence. There's nothing in your life more important than your heart, than your heart of hearts. For from it flows the springs of life. You go up to Central Oregon in the Cascade Mountains. Um, there was a Christian publishing company up there called Multnomah. And uh, Chuck's done a lot of stuff with them. I've, I've done books with Multnomah. They're good guys. Uh, their headquarters used to be in Portland, but then they moved to a little town called Sisters, Oregon, which is absolutely gorgeous. It's surrounded by s seven snow-capped volcanoes, peaks, that are usually dormant, which is a good thing. <laughs> gorgeous, gorgeous, high desert. It's on the other side of the Cascades, so you don't get the rain that Portland and Eugene get. It's a much better climate, a lot less gorgeous, gorgeous. Well, just up from this little town of Sisters, you go up to a little town called Metolius, and there's the Metolius River. And you take a little hike. You don't go too far, maybe a quarter of a mile, and... You've got a big granite rock that juts up, you know, a couple hundred feet. And uh, you're walking from the parking lot up this path, and here's this beautiful, gorgeous spring-fed river. Well, you're walking to the headwaters. You're walking to the source. And as you walk up to that uh, big honking piece of granite, from the bottom of that is a seep. I mean, that thing, that thing isn't that wide. And those springs are coming from thousands and thousands. That cold, pure, crystal clean water is coming from thousands of feet below the earth. That thing just bubbles. It bubbles. And you're just looking at it. So this is unbelievable. And then you start walking back down the path, and you go 100 yards, you go 200 yards, and, and that little seep all of a sudden gets like this, and then it gets like this, and then it gets like this. And you don't walk too far, and that river's as wide as this building is. You see? Now, those headwaters, that spring is really important. Keeping that spring pure and clean and non-toxic. Because, you see, out of that spring, out of that heart, flows the rest of life. The rest of the river. The heart, the heart is the center the, the, the heart is the issue. The, the heart must be kept uh, uh, detailed. Sometimes, you know, our cars, you know, we live in our cars. And gosh, what's your car look like? When you were a kid, what'd your car look like? Some of you guys have always been meticulous. But I'm going to tell you something. I had fungus growing in the back seat of my car there <laughs> at a period of time. I, when I had my BMW, it was always clean. But I had one car that was worthless, and I just, I mean, I throw stuff back there. Uh, now today, you can go get your car detailed. And if you detail a car 
about every six months or have somebody detail it for you, I mean, the sucker looks brand new. And every time you do it, you're just so glad you did it because it puts, I mean, the thing can be 10 years old, but it looks gorgeous because it's been detailed. I mean, every crevice of sand is taken out of the back seat. I mean, it, it, you know, they just go through, what are they doing? They're doing due diligence on the car. That's what we got to do with, with our hearts. And that's what Solomon is saying to his son. Your heart is absolutely critical. Watch over it with all due diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. So that's why fathers have talk with their sons about what they see and what they watch and what they put into their minds. Because when I talk with my boys about sex, I remember I had a conversation with John when he was about seven years old about sex. And we were talking about pornography. And uh, we were having this discussion one night. And he said, that's a little early, isn't it? Not really. Not anymore. Not in this culture. Because, see, in this culture, we rob children of their moral innocence. And we do it early. Um, I just happened to watch Monday Night Football the other night to, to see the Cowboys get beat. I mean, I just wanted to see how badly they were going to get beat. And they got beat very badly. Um, but I happened to see that opening that they did with Terrell Owens and this chick from this uh, slut TV show they got out now. And, you know, I mean, I'm watching this thing, and, I'm, and she dropped that towel, and, from, and then she jumps in his arms. Now, I'm going to tell you something. About five years ago, now, there was some uproar about Five years ago, people would have gone crazy. But see, we're just being lulled. We're just being lulled. And those guys knew what they were doing. And they knew, you know, oh, we'll apologize. They knew what they were doing. See, they don't care. They don't care that little kids, hey, on the Pacific Coast, that was 6 o'clock at night. You know how many kids watch the Cowboys? You know how many little kids love the Cowboys? Little kids are watching this crap on TV. See, we're robbing kids of their moral innocence. So I'm talking to John, he's seven years old. We're talking about pornography and, you know, all this. And, you know, I, I asked him if he'd ever seen it, and he hadn't seen it yet. I said, you know, you're going to have some friends one day show it to you. You're going to find it in a trash can in an alley. You're gonna... We were just talking about it. And I said, you know, John, we're the way we're wired. God has made us. When we see a lady, and these ladies in these magazines aren't ugly. They're, they're beautiful. They're attractive. Um, but, and a lot of times they have to alter the pictures to make them even more so because they're, they're, not, they're not real looking. But, but when we see that, and man, that gets us going because we're men. And to see a, a, a lady without her clothes on, that's, that's, that gets our motors running because God's given us a sexual drive. And I'm talking to him when he's seven. Uh, I said, but John, these ladies that are in these magazines, a lot of them, well, did you know that that's somebody's uh, mommy sometimes? Not always. It's definitely someone's daughter. And when I put that in a context of human relationships, he could hardly handle it. He said, Daddy, why would they do that? And I said, well, their lives are real broken. And usually, uh, usually almost without exception, they've got a real bad relationship with their father. Their fathers let them down, and they can't trust any men. And they feel cheap, and they feel worthless. That's why they would do that and expose themselves. I said, John, let me ask you something. Could you ever be, have you ever been real thirsty? He goes, oh, yeah, Dad. I said, can you imagine being in a desert and not having water for like two days, and you're lost, and you come over a little hill, and here's this old abandoned gas station, and you're about ready to die, and you walk in, and, and, you, uh, and you turn on the tap, because you need that, and nothing comes out. You can't find any water. You had your hopes up, and there's no water. But then you walk around, and there's a door open, and busted, and there's a men's room. And you walk in there, and you turn it, nothing. And then you look in the toilet, and there's this old, dirty toilet water. I said, John, could you ever be so thirsty that you drink that water? He said, Dad, that's, that's gross. I said, you bet it's gross. I said, John, let me tell you something. That's what pornography is. Pornography is putting toilet water in your mind. You don't ever want to do that. You want to keep it pure. You want that pure water. You want that clean water. Because here's the thing, John, about pornography. What you look at when you're nine, you can remember when you're 90. You see? That's what... 
Those are good conversations to have, aren't they? Why is it so difficult for us to talk with our kids about that? Why is it so difficult for us to talk with our sons? Why is it so difficult? Because, see, it's going to come up in life. Uh, it might come up with your grandson. Uh, you know, Proverbs says, like apples of gold in settings and silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. There's nothing like a God-ordained situation to declare truth and to pass it on to the next generation, is there? It's the greatest thing in the world. And see, that's our job as dads. Uh, what I was talking to him about was his heart, his heart, to keep that heart pure and to keep it clean. And you guys get it. The next thing he talks about to a son, you guys still there? Yeah. See, isn't it great that women aren't in here? Because we can tell stories like that and talk about toilet water and all kinds I think it's wonderful. If you could just edit that off the tape, guy, that last <laughs> statement, it'll be misconstrued and misunderstood. Verse 24, um, this is sons and their mouths. He's talking to his boy. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech Far from you. That word devious, some translations have perverse, the, the corrupt. The, the, the heart image of that word is uh, crooked. Crooked. Let's read it that way. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put crooked speech far from you. So I believe it's today that they're dedicating uh, Clinton's presidential library. I don't know why I segued into that. It just popped into my head. You, you know exactly why I segued into it. He's one of the greatest liars in American history. What a sad legacy. No doubt, he, no doubt the guy's gifted. I mean, no doubt, whether you like him or not, you got to give the guy, he, he's gifted. Uh, I, I've been... Uh, I, I've been on planes with him. I lived in Little Rock for four years. I've been on planes with him. I've been in restaurants, and I've seen him work a room. Uh, the guy's good. Unbelievably good with people. Uh, he can pull you in quick. They're, they're, he, he is uh, so winsome. It's remarkable. But, uh, but what a wasted What, what a, <laughs> I'm laughing. <laughs> you might need to cut this too. <laughs> I was I was driving back to the house today, and I was listening to Rush, and he had this he had this thing on the opening of the president of the Clinton Presidential Library, and they were inviting people to come and see all the things, and and uh, he said, "Be sure and come and and see a one minute video on Clinton's greatest moments in the presidency." That's the part you probably ought to. Now, isn't it sad that we're laughing about that? Now, when I was in school back in the 1830s, when we talked about presidents, we talked about uh, George Washington. We talked about Abraham Lincoln being given too much change. And when he discovered it, he walked four or five miles back to the little store to return the change and then walked four miles back to his house. See, when we were kids, we heard about integrity, didn't we? We heard about respect. We heard about honor. We heard about uh, values. We heard about morality. We heard about leadership. Isn't it sad that it's, that it's crumbled like this? Isn't it sad that it has collapsed? Uh, isn't, isn't it sad that we have become a nation of liars I've got a book in my library that, that was put out about six years ago. Title escape me, escapes me. It's a red book, and it's basically about the fact that Americans are liars. We just lie. Uh, you know, it's been said of Clinton that if his uh, that is if if his mouth's moving, he's lying. 
Now, he lies when you don't have to lie. Now, you know what I find really interesting when you, when you um, look at Clinton's story? Um, it doesn't appear that there was a strong man in his life. Uh, wouldn't it have been something if Clinton had a father who was a man uh, of virtue and a man who followed Christ? Not a man who went to church. Not a Jimmy Dean father, but a man of God. That when his boy would lie, he would deal with that lie. How many of you guys ever had your mouths washed out with soap? Now, I want to see the guys. Raise your hand if you've never had that. All right, let's head over to the men's room. <laughs> that is one of the greatest experiences of life, is to have a bar of ivory soap. And, and my mom never really stopped. I mean, she just put it on the tip of my tongue. You got the, oh, you got the liquid. Ooh. What do you do, give your kids a straw? I mean, boy, that's tough. You're a tough man. Oh, you got it. Oh, you got it from your, I see. Okay, yeah. That's child abuse. Man, they'd have you in jail before the night's over. But, but you see, hey, listen, that proved, that made a point, didn't it, for you guys that experienced that. And the point was, I don't ever want to go through this again. You see, I remember my mom taking a switch. She'd go off in the back and get off that tree and get just a little, one of those, kind of like Zorro, you know? <laughs> just cut a Z right in my rear end. You know? Why? She didn't want me to be a liar. Why? Because it's important that as men that we don't have crooked speech. That's extremely important. Uh, I've used the illustration here. I might have used it last week. They used to run these cattle drives all the time. And they'd have 19, 20-year-old kids running these cattle drives sometimes. Two, three, four thousand head of cattle. I was talking with a guy after I used the illustration. And he was telling me, he said, he said I'm, I'm in the oil business. I drill a lot of wells. He said, no, I've got attorneys. But he said, you know what? We still operate on that basis. He said, I was talking with a guy from Boston last week, who wants in, we're putting a group of investors together for a well. And this is a riot. He said, this guy calls me from Boston, and he's got, you know, you know the banks and all this. He, he calls me, and they referred him to me. And he said, hey, I'd like to get on that well. And, and this guy, who is a strong believer, said, well, wait a minute. You're from Boston? He goes, yeah. He said, in Texas, we're not real big on people from Boston. <laughs> Because we've had bad experience with, with, with them on moral issues. He said, I don't know you at all. He said, obviously, you got some money or you wouldn't be calling me. And uh, I know the folks that have referred you. But uh, he said, can I just tell you straight how we do business down here? He says, you guys, well, I got my attorneys. And he said, yeah, I got attorneys too. But let me tell you how, how, how we do business down here. If, uh, if, if you ever break your word, he said, I'll blackball you with every oil man in Texas, and you'll never do another deal again as long as you're alive on the face of the earth. I just thought I'd let you know up front. I found that really refreshing. <laughs> the guy just needed to know. You see? Because you can't, you, hey, you can't do business with someone who's got a crooked tongue, can you? Uh, deceit is a corrosive, isn't it? Any of you guys have toddlers at your house? Anybody? So you guys do the baby proofing, right? You can't open any door in the house. <laughs> you got to do that little thing. Well, why? You're good dads. Because you don't want your little toddler getting under the kitchen sink and getting Drano. Because if they drink Drano, it'll kill them. Because Drano is a corrosive. Lying and deceit is a corrosive that uh, kills trust. So what's he saying to his boy? Don't be a liar. Don't be a liar. He's not done yet. You guys still there? Okay. See, isn't this stuff practical? Isn't it? It's just how you live life. It's what you call wisdom. It's what you call common sense, which we don't have much of anymore in this country. But God still has his people 
And God still has his people that you can trust their word and they live by integrity and isn't refreshing when you run into somebody like that. Anybody in here have a good mechanic that you trust? Let me see your hand. All right, I want you to email. <laughs> yeah, it, when you find a guy like that uh, and you walk in there, that guy's shop is always full, isn't it? Those bays are never empty. Why? Because he does good work, he does it right, and he does, he's not cheating you. He's not telling you you need this when you don't need it. See, guys who do their work like that, who aren't crooked with their tongues and crooked in their business, they got more business than they can handle. Why? Because you can trust them. I mean, this is the most basic stuff in the world. They were worried about our kids getting all these education, all these degrees. If they don't have this, you know what's so sad? Those Enron guys. Those guys were all valedictorians. Those guys were all top of their class. Those guys were all straight-A students. And how many of them are in jail today? Because they never got this in their heart. They had all the stuff, all the degrees, all, you know, valedictorians, you know, all the... So they start doing those crooked audits, and they start, you know, deceiving it. See, it'll kill you. It'll ruin your life. Do you talk with your kid about this yet? Well, you got to step up, man. So he's got, he, he's got the mouth covered. Now, now it's the eyes. Boy, this gets interesting. Verse 25. Let your eyes, son, look directly ahead, and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, uh, see, see, eyes can get you in trouble, can't they? Um, in Psalm 23, it says that, uh, that the Lord leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. As we're walking through life, there's a lot of things we can see. We can look to the left, we can look to the right, and we get ourselves in trouble. But you see, when, when a gaze is straight ahead, and, and, and what, what, you know, Proverbs talks about a path, or it talks about a way. Uh, every day we get up and we choose our path, we choose our way, and, and you stay focused. You, you, you keep those eyes on the right path. You don't look at the on-ramp of 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 sin, you don't look at the on-ramp of this or this. You keep your gaze fixed straight ahead. What does Hebrews 12 say? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's how we go through life. We fix our eyes on him. We're following him. We're pursuing him. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You see? It's a steady, level gaze, and your eye is on the goal. Cell phones uh, can be real good. Cell phones can be real bad. It would be interesting to know, wouldn't it, how many automobile accidents are the result of cell phones? Because what is it that cell phones do? They distract, and they uh, tempt you to take your eye off the path. They're very convenient, but they can be very deadly. Uh, i got to move. Sons and feet. Feet. Now, see, there's a correlation between eyes and feet. Because if, if you start putting your eyes on the wrong thing and you start lingering, your feet are going to want to take you there. Look at uh, 26 and 27. He's talking to his boy. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established 
Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from, from evil. If you've got a Bible, turn back to Joshua chapter 1. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. When Joshua was taking over the leadership of the nation of Israel from Moses, that was a huge undertaking. I mean, Joshua just had to be overwhelmed. I mean, this guy, is, I mean, you can't even imagine. You can't fill those shoes. You don't replace a guy like that. You never replace a guy like that. You just, you just take the reins. Joshua 1, verse 5. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Next verse. Only be strong and courageous. Very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do due diligence. It's not what it says, it's what it means. So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. What does he say? Be careful to do according to all the law which I gave to Moses. Don't depart from the right or to the left. In other words, keep your eyes on the mark, because if your eyes are on the mark, your feet will stay on the mark. There's always a correlation between eyes and feet. Always. Wrong paths begin with wrong sight. So we've got to stay fixed on the goal. I'll tell you, that, that Jimmy Dean story to me is a great sadness. It's a great sadness. He, he goes on and he talks about the, you know, his career, and uh, the guy hit it big early. But, uh, and, and, you know, they'd put on these country western shows, and, and uh, he had an early morning show. Some of you guys remember Dave Garraway in the 50s, had the first early morning today show. He was the first guy. Well, Jimmy Dean went up against Dave Garraway and beat him had a national program. And you know what they'd sing on that national program? It was country and western. They'd sing, they'd sing country songs and they'd sing gospel songs. And Jimmy Dean knew all the gospel songs. He knew them all. He knew them all by heart. He knew them all by memory. But there's absolutely nothing in that biography that says he ever embraced it in his heart. And what does it all come back to? It comes back to his father. It comes back to health. His dad said one thing, and his dad did another. Man, we have an influence. Don't we have an impact? We sure do. I'll tell you, this is a little overwhelming, being a father, isn't it? It's a little overwhelming being a grandfather. Uh, it's so overwhelming, we can't do it by ourselves. That's why we need the Heavenly Father. So let's pray. Father, tonight, we want to fix our eyes on Jesus. Uh, some of us, Lord, right now are under great pressure. I've talked to two guys tonight that are having a hard time financially because of the weather. And their work is related to the weather. Now, if our work's not related to the weather, we'd never, we'd never even think about that. But these guys are being affected. Uh, some of us are coming from difficult situations, and we've got decisions to make, and we've got issues before us. I pray, Father, that no matter where we are, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus. I pray, Father, that we would not veer to the right nor to the left. I pray, Lord, we wouldn't be suckered by shortcuts. I pray that we wouldn't be conned by the enemy who loves to say, here's a better way. And no one will know. But the fact of the matter is, Lord, those shortcuts always, always bring incredible pain. Father, we love your word or we wouldn't be here. And we love you or we wouldn't be here. But the enemy loves to come after guys who are committed to you. We thank you for this book. We thank you for the truth that is in it. We would pray for ourselves. 
we would pray for ourselves, Lord, because we're more vulnerable than we realize. I am probably more vulnerable at this point in my life than I've ever been before. And that thought frightens me. So many men go down, Lord, at the age that I find myself to be. So Lord, give me a fear of sin. Give me a fear of shortcuts. Give me a fear of screwing up. And help me to keep my eyes on you. I pray that for myself. I pray that for these men. Because there are children watching. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.